0: It's great to be back with you. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. Um, I don't know what you like to, to watch on Netflix or Hulu or TV. I'm, I'm a big docu-series guy. Mm, come on. Um, I love, love a good docu-series. I'm a big history buff. And if, if the, the series happens to also be entertaining, it's just kind of a bonus, right? I'm also a 90s kid, like I was born in 87, and so um, anything talking about the 90s, or early 2000s, I kind of geek out about, right? I really enjoy it. I, I got caught up, kind of a, a guilty pleasure docuseries lately was, the, there's a series on the investigation of the murder of Tupac and Biggie, and I got, got just like all <laughs> wrapped into that one, obviously in between praying and fasting in my study, uh, but... I really enjoy those, right? And the the thing about it is, having lived through it, right? Whether it's O.J. Simpson or Tupac and Biggie or whatever it is, having lived through it, I know how the story is going to end, and yet I'm on the edge of my seat because the the way it there's the tension and there's there's the details, and it's in the details that things really seem to matter. And as we continue our our series, that this changes everything and we're going through the gospel of Matthew and, and looking at Passion Week and the the week in the life of Jesus leading up to Easter weekend. Matthew writes and gives us snapshots kind of in the same way. He's, he's giving you stories and in, in events and snapshots that are that are leading you to the story. We know how the story is going to end and yet Matthew is inviting us in to see all the different instances, all the different interactions, all the different moments that led to the big event, the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, the the thing that changed everything. And as we turn to Matthew 26 now, we come to another one of those snapshots with this story of a woman Who anoints the head of Jesus. And here, as you get into the story, and we're gonna start in verse one, you're gonna see three types of people that we're gonna focus on today. You're going to see the offended, you're gonna see the distracted, and then you're gonna see the focused. You'll see the offended, the distracted, and the focused. Let's dive in to the next part of the story. Matthew chapter 26, we'll start in verse one. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to the disciples, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming and the son of man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble this woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for stories like this, snapshots leading up to the gospel, that we today get to fulfill the very promise that your son gave in telling this woman's story again for the sake of the gospel. Would you please be with us? Open our eyes, open our hearts, do the thing that I can't do and change lives Mm -hmm. because in your gospel, in your truth, in your finished work, really everything change. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let me give you a little bit of context here to understand what's happening in the passage. The chapter begins with the phrase, and Jesus had finished all these sayings. Now, scholars um, are they're on two sides of the aisle when it comes to what exactly Matthew is talking about here. First, There's a possibility that he's referring to the end of what we call the Olivet Discourse. Matthew 23 through 25, Jesus gives a series of sayings and pronounces woes against the religious leaders and talks about the future, talks about what's going, going to happen, and then eventually also deals with the final judgment and the second coming of the Messiah. So there's a possibility here that Matthew wants to give you just a strong transition that, hey, we've ended this discourse, now we're moving on to something else. That's the, the first possibility. The second possibility, the one I, I tend to kind of lean towards, is um, here Matthew really wants you to see what's about to happen, that Jesus has finished teaching. That this is the last week, even two days before he's going to go to the cross. The time for teaching is over. His face is set for Golgotha. We're in the last 48 hours of Jesus. And it's in this transition that we see verse 2, what Jesus tells him. Let's look. You know that after two days, the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up and crucified. Like any good storyteller, Matthew is building this tension. He set the urgency of the situation before us. Last week, Dan took you through the entrance, that Jesus enters into Jerusalem, He riding not on this white horse of military power and victory, but humbly on this donkey, fulfilling what Zechariah had promised us in chapter 9, that the, the Messiah would come hum, humbly on a donkey. And he enters into Jerusalem with cheers of Hosanna, son of David, praises the same crowd that in 48 hours from now is going to yell, crucify him. And he enters into Jerusalem and you see the curse of a fig tree. You see the shouts of people. You see the turning over of tables and chairs, the cleansing of the temple. And now we feel the tension. Two days away, he wants his disciples to understand Jesus is in Jerusalem for one purpose. Jesus has come to die. And it's in that tension that we see the first group. We see the offended. Look at verse 3. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. The religious religious leaders hated Jesus. They hated everything about him. They didn't understand him. He didn't do things the way they thought he should do. Um, They didn't understand why he hung out with who he hung out with. They didn't understand why he ate dinner with who he ate dinner with. They didn't understand the disciples that he carried around while these fools are eating Food in the field and they don't wash their hands. They they didn't understand. They absolutely hated Jesus. He didn't cater to their position. He didn't worship the feet that they walked with. He didn't sit them at the, the honored position of the table. They hated him. They didn't understand him. They've been wanting to kill him since Matthew chapter twelve, when he said, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath when they pushed back against his disciples eating on the Sabbath. And then he heals a man with a withered hand and they go nuts. How dare you violate the Sabbath by healing someone? Don't you know the rules, Jesus? Don't you know how this religion works, Jesus? Don't you know what it looks like to follow our system, Jesus? And Jesus does not care at all. And for that, they want him dead. But it's not just a matter of not liking Jesus. You can not like someone and not kill them, right? There's a lot of coworkers we may have that we don't like. There's a lot of people we may not like. Sometimes relationships are messy and difficult. We may be angry, but we don't want to kill them. This is more than just a hatred. This is more than just a dislike. They see Jesus as a threat. They're offended. Jesus is a threat to everything. In John's account, we get a little more detail to the the interaction as Jesus moves further and further towards Jerusalem and to Golgotha. With every increasing day, his influence is getting bigger and bigger and bigger to the point that in John's account, it says, if we're not careful, everyone is going to believe in him. And now we go. That's kind of the point. But more than that, they saw if they believed in Jesus, the religious leaders are going to lose control. So they see Jesus as an absolute threat. And it culminates in the entrance into Jerusalem when the crowd calls him Hosanna, son of David. But they're not stupid. They know what time it is. It's Passover. It's one of the largest pilgrimage festivals for the Jewish people. Think Riverfest and Race for the Cure on steroids. (laughs) Right? Like, it is absolutely packed out wall to wall. And they know if they arrest him in the middle of this crowd, there will be an absolute riot on their hands. So they're having this meeting. And notice Caiaphas has just got his little core group of people It's not an official meeting. It's at night at his house where they're plotting and planning to arrest him in stealth. They're going to do it when no one's looking because they don't want to cause an uproar. But at the end of the day, Caiaphas sees Jesus as an absolute threat. Caiaphas was high priest for 18 years. It was the longest that any high priest held That position during the Herodian Roman era. He's a smart politician. He knows what it takes not only to gain control of the people, but to maintain his position. But Jesus is an absolute threat. He's a threat to the religious. With Jesus, they see a threat to their way of life. He doesn't do things the way he should. And what's even worse, he calls for them to give up control. He's got to go. But this isn't something that's absolutely foreign to us, especially as we inch further and further into another presidential election. I want you to watch because you'll see certain politicians, they'll know exactly what to say and the exact buzzwords to use and the exact policies to jump on, the exact issues to harp in on both sides because they know what it's going to take to maintain control or gain position. They're going to say what they need to say. They're going to do what they need to do. This isn't foreign to us. We know what this is like. At the end of the day, Jesus will always offend the religious. If you can't put Jesus in your debt by performance, you'll look for ways to cut him out of your system altogether. For the offended, Jesus is a cost analysis. He's a return on an investment and if he doesn't prove the right amount of return, he's useless. If he doesn't bless you for all that you've done for him, if life doesn't go the way you think it should, if Jesus doesn't cater to your way the way you think he should, you'll remove him. We see this with the religious leaders, and we see it with Judas. It's the reason that Matthew, if you look in the passage, bookends two events. He bookends the the conversation with Caius and the the party that's getting ready to kill him, on the back end, he puts Judas and the negotiation for Jesus' life. Matthew wants you to see these bookends. He wants you to see the tension of the offended. First, there's the meeting with Caiaphas. Then there's the negotiation with Judas. Both are offended. Both see Jesus as a threat. Meanwhile, in Bethany, let's look at verse 6. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper. So let me give you just a little background and context to, to what, who uh, we're talking about and where we're talking about. So Bethany is just a small town right outside of Jerusalem. It's about a mile and a half outside of the city. So think the distance between river, uh, the River Market and downtown Little Rock, about a mile and a half. And here, this is an area where Jesus is going to continuously go back to during Passion Week because this is where his friends are. This is the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. That This is obviously also the home of a guy named Simon the leper. We don't know a lot about Simon other than he's nicknamed Simon the leper because apparently at one point in time he was a leper and now he's not, right? But this is just like Jesus. He's hanging out with the people he told you he would hang out with, the poor, the outcast, the broken, the ceremonial, unclean. He's dining with them once again here, Simon, who at one point in time had to have been healed because now he's ate well enough to throw this party. And so Jesus is hanging out with them and dining. And it's here that we encounter the second group of people. We encounter the distracted. Let's look and see what it says. And a woman came up with him came up to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. So why do I call them the distracted? It's because of what's happening here. Here, Jesus has told them, in two days, I'm going to be delivered up and crucified that bit of information triggers this woman to go into action she comes in and she anoints jesus head with oil but the disciples only can see social justice anger and we we hear this all the time don't we Churches have, you have so many big buildings, you have so much overhead, you need to do more for the poor. Why are you doing things the way you're doing? Couldn't you use that money for something else? Why are you paying pastors? Why are you doing all these things? It's the same conversation here. Instead of paying attention to the urgency that Jesus is telling you, in two days, I'm gone. They get so caught up and distracted in this particular moment that they absolutely miss Jesus. But notice what happens. This woman has come with this very expensive oil. Mark's account of this story tells us the oil was worth 300 denarii. A denarii is about a day's worth uh, of wage. So this is almost a year's salary. This is a very expensive alabaster flask. And this isn't one of those essential oils where you can just take off the cap and you drop a couple couple of drops and you put it (laughs) on your forehead and your temple. No, this is a one-hitter-quitter. You crack it open, you got to use the whole thing, right? This is a heirloom. It's something precious. We're talking tens of thousands of dollars. This would have... Come from India or Nepal. This would have been passed down from generation to generation. And she, hearing what's happening, knowing who's sitting at that table, says, It's worth it. But the disciples are so distracted that they miss it. And we'll get to the woman in just a bit. But Jesus has told them, I'm going to die. I'm going to be crucified. And these are the ones that have been with him. Three years now they've been with him. They've watched him do extraordinary things. They've watched him teach like one with authority unlike anything they've ever seen. They've been in Bethany where Jesus has literally raised the dead. They're in Lazarus' hometown. And still in this moment when he tells them what is about to happen, the only thing they can think about is couldn't she have had better use of that oil than this? Don't you know how many poor people we could have taken care of with that? They see this extraordinary event and the first thing they do is get incredibly angry. They've got Jesus in front of them and they're missing him. I spent six years pastoring a church in a trailer park in Conway and it was an under-resourced area so we didn't take a salary we had kind of a house church type format, my wife and I even moved into the trailer park and lived there for about a year and a half to build relationships with the people and as we continued in our, our ministry there the longer things went on the more we kind of started to position ourselves as we're the church that gets it we're the church that's that's in the trenches. We're the church that's doing the hard work. Why don't these other churches do what we're doing? You guys absolutely don't know what you're doing. Jesus obviously tells you time and time again to care for the poor. Hadn't you read the Old Testament about all the the passages about caring for the stranger and the broken and restoring streets? and, And don't you know what you're supposed to be doing? And we got to the point to where we elevated our social justice, our desire to do a very good thing and care for the poor, we made that the gospel. At the end of the day, we would ignore passages like this one. Passages that told you you're always going to have the poor with you. I ignored the reality that it would actually have taken not poverty, but a great deal of wealth to buy this oil. I became so singularly focused on the poor and eradicating poverty that I took the fruit of the gospel and made it the gospel. And I want to give the the disciples some, some slack here. They just got done hearing Jesus tell a parable about a king who's going to separate the the sheep from the goats and the goats get thrown into eternal hellfire why because they didn't visit the imprisoned they didn't care for the hungry they didn't love the stranger so you got to think that's in the back of their mind, and they see this woman dumping this alabaster flask, about 12 ounces of oil just dripping down Jesus' head, and they're looking and going, that's $30,000. <laughs> We've got to do something about that. We don't want to end up in hellfire. They, they freak out. And they miss it. Because what is he saying in verse eleven? For you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. They were distracted. They got so caught up in the mission that they missed the Messiah. They got caught up in the treadmill of performance, thinking to follow Jesus and to be saved means I have to do this service and that service. They redefined in that moment, what it meant to follow Jesus. And so easy it is for us to get here. So easy to get here, especially as a church plant when so much work is needed to get things off the ground. It's so easy to take whatever social cause we see. And while it's noble and it's worthy of our time, it's so easy to take it. And make it the mission of the church. When we do this, we mistake areas of common grace where we've been given opportunities to push back the darkness a little bit in this broken world. And we make it saving grace. Does Jesus care about the poor? Absolutely. Does Jesus care about the orphan? Absolutely. Does he care about the single mom? Does he care about racial reconciliation? Does he care about the immigrant and the stranger? Absolutely. But social action will not save us. The only thing at the end of the day that will save us from sin, death, hell, and the grave is the finished work of Jesus. In that moment... The disciples did what we so often do. They got distracted doing the work and they missed Jesus. Which brings us to the last person in the story. The focused. Here we have the woman. Jesus has told them in 48 hours he's going to the cross and that motivates her. He's headed to atone for sin and this woman comes and she anoints his head. She pours out all that she has for Jesus. And that day, anointing the head of someone was a sign of respect, really reserved just for kings or priests. So here, Jesus tells her he's going to die. And she says, Jesus, let me help you prepare to do that. My king and my priest, let me anoint your head with oil. She's focused. She understands who Jesus is. She understands what he's about. She understands what the point is. And she wants to do all that she can to help Jesus accomplish that mission. Notice what he says in verse 10. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble this woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this o- ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. In First Samuel 16, we see the story of David being chosen to be king of Israel. Saul had been picked to be king, and then he had disgraced himself, and it says that the Spirit of the Lord had left Saul, and now God had called Samuel to go look for another king. So Samuel goes, and he's going to Bethlehem to see Jesse and his sons. And as he walks into the... Town gates, the city elders who are kind of guarding the city see Samuel come in with this horn of oil, and they says that they tremble at the sight of Samuel. They know something is about to go down. And so Samuel walks in, and, and after son after son is passed before Samuel, and the Lord says, Nope. 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 Finally, Samuel says, Are these all your sons? And Jesse says, No, there's one. But he's out there watching sheep. He says, go get him. When David appeared before Samuel, Samuel anointed him with oil. And it says that the spirit from that point on rushed upon David. From the event, David is sent to comfort Saul. And then the next thing he's sent to do is kill Goliath. At the table in Bethany, the son of David has come. The true and better king was being prepared to fight the real Goliath and kill sin and death. The king is being prepared by this woman to go to the cross. He'll be buried, and then he'll rise from the dead victorious. Jesus tells his disciples that this woman has done a beautiful thing to him. She's focused. She understands what it means to worship Jesus. She understands that this is why Jesus has come. To live a life that we couldn't live. To fulfill the demands of the law where we so often miss it. To die in our place, taking on himself, our sin, and giving us his righteousness that for all who put their trust in Jesus alone for their salvation, you will have eternal life. She knows that at the feet of Jesus is true freedom. No more need for performance. No more need for posturing or work. In Jesus, she has found her full satisfaction. In Jesus, she understands what she was made for, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Her hope, her identity, and her security is found in Christ alone. And that, that changes everything. Notice what he says, verse 13. Wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be also told in memory of her. And here we are, doing it. When it comes to Jesus, we are going to find ourselves in one of three areas. You're either going to be offended by him because he doesn't do things the way you think he should, and he calls you to give up the control you think you have. Or you're going to be distracted by Jesus, because you want to fit Jesus into your agenda and you'll miss what he's really about and what he has for you. Or you'll be focused on who he is and what he's done and how that changes everything. It changes how we live and it changes how we see the world around us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for stories like this one. We thank you for Christ, our prophet, our priest, and our king, the anointed one who has come and has defeated our enemies. Help us today to see Jesus for who he really is, to understand the transformation, to understand that to find freedom in Christ will change everything for us. Forgive us when we're offended by you. Help us not to be distracted by the work of the gospel that we miss the object of the gospel. Help us. We need you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.